You're listening to The Lenses Podcast from Shades Mountain Baptist Church, engaging the world through the lens of the gospel. For more information and resources, visit shades.org lenses. Well, thank you for turning out again this week. I thought last week maybe no one would come again, um, but I see that most of you have, or some of you have, uh, and that's good because last week was the easy bit, and tonight I'm going to make you work. Uh, so you must pay attention to what I'm saying because if you doze off, uh, you know, in the first few minutes, you'll miss a point or two uh, and then you won't be able to figure out what I'm saying. However, I'm going to try to make it as simple and straightforward as I know how. Last week, I talked about the evidence that we have in the Bible for the divinity of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and for the divinity of the Holy Spirit. And this is the basis, of course, for what we call our doctrine of the Trinity, the three persons in the one God. Now, if you think about this, of course, you've got three in one and one in three. And if you're going to talk about this doctrine, you have to decide which way are you going to start. Now, logically, you might say to yourself, well, we start with one because there's only one God, and we try to figure out how the one God can somehow be three. And that's logically a good way to think. However, uh, in the experience of the early church, it wasn't really like that. In the experience of the early church, they started with the one God, yes, uh, but the one God that they started with turns out to be the Father of Jesus Christ because Jesus taught his disciples. It's that when the disciples said, teach us how to pray, Jesus said, when you pray, pray like this, say, our Father. In other words, it was Jesus who taught his disciples to pray to God as Father. And that was a new idea. And that was something that Jewish people were not used to doing at that time. So Jesus focuses uh, his disciples on that. And of course, he does this because it's only when you start to think about God as Father uh, that you can understand him, that is Jesus, as the Son. I mean, how could Jesus go around saying that he was the Son if you didn't know who he was the Son of? Uh, you know, there had to be some kind of relationship there. Uh, so he introduces himself as the Son. And then in, uh, towards the end of his earthly ministry, uh, when he's about to go away, he teaches his disciples uh, about the coming of the Holy Spirit, the other comforter who will lead them into all truth. And so Jesus' way of presenting uh, the three persons, if you like, of God uh, are one, two, three, like this. Uh, and uh, the early Christians experienced them in that way. They were taught to pray to God as our Father. Then they knew Jesus. They saw Jesus in front of them. They saw him die and rise again from the dead and then ascend into heaven. And then, of course, when the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost, uh, they, they felt his power and presence in their lives. And so for them, uh, it was three different things, you might say, three different experiences that they had to make sense of. Uh, and it was by probing that by from who is the father who is the son who is the holy spirit how are they connected to each other 
that they discovered by investigating them, uh, by relating to them, that underneath, if you like, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were all the same God, one God. So they went, they started with the three and went to the one in practice. That's the way they looked at it. Now, in the ancient world, uh, people tended to think in terms of a hierarchy. Uh, there was a what they call the great chain of being, or a ladder, a ladder of being, which starts right at the top and then goes all the way down, you see? And uh, if you think like this, you've got to think this in your mind, and you're thinking these three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, where do they fit on this ladder, on this chain? And of course, the Father is right at the top. The Father is God in himself. Uh, the, the word they used for this was autotheos. I put it on the paper, autotheos. The auto meaning self and theos, God. So the, the, the absolute end of the line, the highest you could go up the ladder or up the chain. The next in line, the next in the hierarchy was the Son, because it was in the Son that the Father revealed himself, and it was through the Son that you and I could come to the Father. And then third down the line was the Holy Spirit, because it was the Son who sent the Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit who comes into our hearts by faith, the Holy Spirit who reveals Jesus Christ to us, and Jesus Christ takes us to the Father. Now, this chain of being, or this ladder, if you like, you could go on down. You could have Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and then under that you would have the angels who were spiritual beings but not God, and then under that would be human beings, and then under human beings there would be animals, and under the animals would be the insects, and then under the insects would be the lawyers, and under the lawyers would be the politicians, and you would just go on and on and on down the line, you see, like that. The hierarchy of being. Now, this, of course, raises the question of if the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are up at the top, are they equal uh, or are they sort of in a, a, an order of hierarchy, an order of priority? So that the Son is somewhere lower down from the Father, the Holy Spirit lower down, and we have to climb this ladder. You see, we have to climb this ladder in order to get up to God. Now, some of you may say, well, I don't find that in the Bible. Well, that's because you don't know how to read the Bible. You see, if you knew how to read the Bible, you would discover that in Genesis 28, this is revealed. Well, to some people. Because what happens in Genesis 28 is that Jacob is asleep, uh, you know, on the rock, uh, out there in the desert, I suppose it was, well, I don't know, it was a desert, but it was out in the country anyhow. And he, in his sleep, he has a dream and he sees the angels and the archangels going up and down the ladder to heaven. You see? Well, this, of course, was interpreted as the ladder that the Christians have to climb. And the way that was interpreted, you won't believe this, but this is true. They said, well, Jacob called the place where he saw this vision Bethel. 
and Bethel means house of God. So Jacob is in the house of God. But Jacob, of course, is Israel. Israel is another name for Jacob. So Jacob represents the Jewish people who are in the house of God, but they are asleep. And it's Christians who have woken up and who are climbing the ladder. And climbing the ladder, they go through the rung of the Holy Spirit, then the rung of the Son, and then the rung of the Father. See, up to the top like that. And this explains our understanding of the Trinity, our experience of the Trinity. This is the way they thought about it. Now, if they had to have a word uh, to define these, you see, how, what category are you going to put these people in, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they came up with this word hypostasis. Now, I put this on the paper because there really isn't a very good translation for this. This word is perhaps best understood as identity, something that you can perceive, something that you can see and identify. So that if I hold up this folder, for example, this folder is a hypostasis. Why? Because it's got a shape, uh, it, it's, got a, it's got an identity. You see, if I hold, show this to you and I say, what's this? You say, well, it's a folder. You know what it is. You can give a name to it. You see? And this was the way they thought. They said, well, uh, we see this being, you see this divine being who comes into our hearts. This is the Holy Spirit. So we call him the Holy Spirit. Then we see the Son who came into the world, revealed himself as Jesus Christ, so we call him the Son. And then we say that the Father is the one whom they talked about, whom they revealed, whom they brought us near to, so we call him the Father. We identify the three uh, beings, if you like, in God in this way. You see, this is, this is how, we, how we do it. Well, all right. Uh, you see, you can, uh, you can uh, deal with it that way if you like. The only problem is the word hypostasis, this, uh, this way of thinking, you see, is a form of identifying an object. Now, if you say, well, what's the difference between the folder and, say, God? Or indeed, what's the difference between this folder and me? Because I am a hypostasis, and you are a hypostasis, because you are a shape, you have a form, you have an identity. You are a hypostasis of humanity. You see, if you think that humanity is a thing, uh, humanity is a species, something like that, but it is a species that is manifested in different shapes and sizes. You can't go to Walmart and buy a generic human being. There is no such thing, you see. You can only get different manifestations, and we're all different from each other, but we share this thing in common, that we are all human, you see. And in humanity, that's okay, because humanity is manifested only in plurality. You see, in other words, you can have millions of human beings, 
and that's fine. It doesn't make any difference. You see, we're all the same in one way, way and all different in another. But if you apply this to God, you have a problem. Because although you may have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you don't have three gods. Because you can't have three gods. Why can't you have three gods? Because there's only one God. So whereas you can have many different human beings, or many different folders like this, you can't have many different gods. And so people had to stop and think again. You see, it's all very well. We've identified Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, these three hypostases, but we've got to go further than that. We've got somehow or other to try to explain how these three can be distinct, how we know that they're there uh, and they're different somehow, but at the same time, they are only one. So that takes us to the next way of thinking. Start with the one and see how you can work out how you get to three. And people started doing that. They said, well, the Bible speaks of one God. That's quite clear. We, if we're going to talk about Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, somehow or other, we've got to find them inside the one God. But you can't imagine God as a kind of pizza that you then just cut up into three pieces and say, well, that's the Father, that's the Son, that's the Holy Spirit. It doesn't work like that. You see, you can't, because then you would be dividing God. You'd just be splitting up God. And that obviously doesn't work. You wouldn't have God anymore. You'd only have three different parts, three different pieces of God. And so people started to say to themselves, well, who is God? Or what is God? What word can we use to define God? How would you describe God? And the word they came up with was holiness. God is holy. And the Bible stresses this, of course, right the way through. God is holy, meaning God is quite different from you and me and indeed from anything else. Holiness is a characteristic that belongs uniquely to him. And then, well, how do you get three out of that? Well, again, uh, of course, if you read your Bible carefully, you will find that in Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 3, and I've put it down here on the paper, when uh, Isaiah the prophet went into the temple in the year that King Uzziah died, uh, he saw the Lord high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple, and the cherubim and the seraphim were crying, Holy, 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 Lord God of hosts, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Glory be to you, O Lord Most High. All right? Holy, holy, holy. One, two, three. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. You see, it's there in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3, or so they thought. Now, you would fail a class in Old Testament today if you answered a question like that, because that is, of course, not what Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3 actually 
means. Uh, but there was a man called Reginald Heber who in the year 1826 uh, was so taken with this that he sat down and wrote a hymn, which you may know, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, early in the morning our song shall rise to thee. Holy, 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 merciful and mighty, God in three persons, blessed Trinity. You see, he didn't get it. He thought Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 3 talked about the Trinity. Now this, of course, is a reminder to us that you should not get your theology from hymns, even if you like the tune. And this is the greatest thing we have to fight. You know, People like me have to fight this all the time because you point out these hymns are all wrong and then somebody comes up and they're in tears, you know, because they love the music. And I've just ruined their lives because now they can't sing this anymore. Well, I'm sorry about that. Uh, but it is wrong. <laughs> Anyhow, uh, what I want to concentrate on right now is uh, the method that is being used here. Because whoever came up with this in the initially, you see, was thinking, find a principle, one thing that you can say about God, and then try to figure out how you can turn it into three different aspects, you see, three different parts, uh, without losing anything, you see. Uh, and if you have holy, 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 well, God is holy, holy, fully holy, uh, you know, and you, you can't distinguish. The problem, of course, is you can't tell the difference. You see, if I say holy, 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 you say, well, that's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But if I just say holy, just one of them, which one am I talking about? Well, of course, you don't know because there's no, no distinguishing mark. There's nothing to separate, nothing to distinguish them. So this was the problem, you see. You could say Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are distinct. They're different. So how can they be the same? Holy, holy, holy are the same. So how can they be different? You see, you're trying to put this together. You're trying to get it uh, together uh, in, uh, in some kind of order. Now, the people who said this, you see, who said the holy, 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 of course, they uh, were not unaware uh, that there was this hierarchy, this hierarchy of being. So they said, well, there's the first holy, the second holy, the third holy. Uh, and, uh, you know, they, they do have an order. They do come in an order of some sort. Uh, and they said that God is like this, um, that uh, his being, his substance, his essence, as I put down here, substantia, his essence, his substance, was all one, manifested in these three different ways. And each of them is equal, equal in status. They're, they're the same level. They're not a, sort of one on top of the other. They're all on the same level. Um, but they're different in rank, different in order, you see. Uh, in other words, uh, you know, it's kind of like in the army. Uh, if you have a general and a colonel and a lieutenant, at one level, they're all human beings, so they're all equal, uh, but they're different in rank, they're different in order, and they tried to explain the persons of the Godhead like this. They also, incidentally, 
invented the word person. Well, not so much invented the word person as used the word person of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for the first time. Why? Well, because calling Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are hypostases. These were identities, something that you could see, you could distinguish, but you couldn't interact with them. You see, I call this a hypostasis, all right, but if I talk to it, it can't talk back to me. I can't have a relationship with this. Well, not a very good one, anyway. Um, you know, it doesn't work very well. And, of course, when dealing with God, uh, there has to be some kind of mutuality. There has to be some kind of communication. God, ha We have to be able to talk to him, and he has to be able to talk to us. That's fundamental to the Bible. If you don't believe that, the Bible doesn't make any sense, you see, because what are you going to say? God speaks to people. The people respond to him. There's got to be some way that this can happen. And how is this going to work? Well, the word person came to be used for this. Uh, it, it originally came from the theater. And in the theater, this word person meant mask. Uh, and the reason for this was that in the ancient world, they liked to save money on theater productions. Uh, and so a Greek theater company would have only three actors. Uh, and the three actors played all the parts. You see, how could they do this? Well, they did it by changing the mask that they wore. You see, they would put a mask on to indicate which character they were playing. And, of course, the mask would be distorted. You'd have big ears or big nose or big mouth or something like that to indicate what kind of character you were playing. So if you had big ears, you know, you were, uh, you were stupid. Or if you had a big nose, you were, you were nosy, literally. Uh, you know, if you had a big mouth, you were a gossip, you talked a lot, this kind of thing. People would be able to tell the minute they saw the mask what kind of character was being represented. Well, of course, it's only a short step from there to look at people's faces and try to read what kind of character they are. You know, you, can you look somebody in the eye and sort of tell what that person is like? You know, just by looking at them. Do they sort of give themselves away in their face? I do, apparently. I mean, I don't know this myself. I don't feel it. But people always say to me, that when I'm sitting in church, listening to somebody else preach, People will say, they look at me, they can tell from the look on my face what I think about the sermon. I'm not aware of this, but apparently I give myself away like this, you know. Uh, and people say this to me, they say, oh, I know you didn't like that, or you really enjoyed that. And I say, how did you know that? I said, well, I could just see the look on your face. I said, really? Uh, <laughs> of course, I can't, you see. But can, can you do this? Can you actually look at somebody in the face and sort of tell what sort of people they are, you know, what they're like. Well, this is where this idea came from. But then this word, you see, person, was taken over by the Romans, and they used it in the law courts, because a law court is a kind of drama. It's a kind of theater, you know. The, the people stand up there, and they plead the case before the judge and so on, and uh, it's all very theatrical and, and all the rest of it. 
And a person in Roman law was somebody who had the right to sue another person or be sued. You see, someone who had the right to act in a court of law. Now, this did not mean... A, a per, see, we today think a person is a human being. Same thing. But that's not the way they thought. Because in ancient Rome, the only people who, were, who could do this, who had the right to sort of plead a case in court, were free Roman citizens who were adult males. They were the only ones who could do this. So everybody else, women, children, slaves, foreigners, these were not persons. Now, the word person did not apply to them. All right? But this word person was taken over from this Ro Roman law and applied to God. Why? Because it's that God can act. God is an agent. See, God is God is a judge. God God is uh, is is the giver of law, and, and so of course He gives the law, and we hear the law, and we are guilty because we don't keep the law. So our relationship to God is kind of like standing in a court, uh, with judgment being passed on us, and of course the Son, the Son of God, steps in and takes our side, if you like, pleads for us. Uh, in the court in front of the Father uh, and asks the Father to forgive us, to pardon us, uh, you see, because of what the Son has done for us. He said, I have paid the price, so let these people off. And so it's in this context, you see, that the word person comes to be used not only of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but also of the Christian believer, you and me. And of course, once this happens, once it moves from being a Roman citizen to being a Christian believer, then of course the differences between male and female, child and adult, slave and free and all that disappear, you see, because anyone can be a believer. Uh, you know, it, it doesn't matter what sex you are, what age you are, uh, what nationality you are. It just covers everybody. And so the word person generalizes itself. You see, becomes much more general. And uh, the, the Christian said, every human being is created in the image and likeness of God. In other words, every human being is a person, a person who can relate to God, who stands in a relationship with him. And the only question is, is that relationship the right relationship or is it the wrong relationship? Now, you've got to think about this. Because, you see, today we tend to say either you have a relationship with God or you don't. People talk like that. But this is wrong. Because every human being has a relationship with God whether they want it or not. The difference is whether your relationship with God is right or whether it's wrong. You see? And when you come into the world, you are born into the world in the wrong relationship with God. This is known as being a sinner, you see, being cut off from God. And of course, you are responsible for this. God has created you. God has made you in his image, and you have not uh, done 
you know, what you should. You are, you are in the wrong relationship with him, and somehow or other that wrong relationship has got to be put right. And of course it can only be put right by the death of Christ and by faith in him, which comes by the work of the Holy Spirit. And so this is how the persons of the Trinity work in our lives. Now, once this picture starts to develop, people say, well, this gives us a clue. This gives us a way of thinking about God. Because we open our Bible again, and we say, well, God is holy. Yes. You see, and indeed, it is because God is holy and we are not that we, the problem arises in the first place. You see? Uh, and if holiness is the criterion that we have to use, then of course we're all cut off from God. We're never going to get anywhere near him uh, on that basis because I cannot be holy. I cannot become holy like him. So we need to find another way of, of connecting, you see, another way in which this can work. And if we look at the New Testament, we find that it says in the New Testament that God is love. And so they'll say, well, all right, that's good. Let's put love in the place of holiness. But you know, love is not a thing. Love is not a characteristic. You can say God is holy, but you, and if you say that God is love, you're implying something more than that. Because you can only say that God is love, or indeed that love exists, if there is somebody or something that you love. You see, love has to have an object. I mean, I can't walk around and say, I am love, or I am loving, and then say, oh, and who are you? You're getting in the way, you know, I'm, I'm love, you know, get out of the way. Um, I mean, it doesn't work, does it? So I can say I'm holy, stay away because you're not. Uh, but if I'm love, uh, then there's got to be some sort of connection somehow, you see, some kind of relationship. And so in love, you have somebody who loves, you have someone who is loved, who receives that love. Uh, and then the question arises, the person who receives that love, does that person return the love uh, or not? You see? Now, in human life, of course, we know that this can get very, very complicated. Because you can love somebody, but that somebody doesn't love you back. Then what do you do? You see, then what you have is a tragedy because this is what we call unrequited love. It's love that somehow or other doesn't work. And this is possible in human life because, of course, we're all imperfect. You see, I mean, I might love you, but if you don't love me back, we've got a problem. It's just not going to work, you see, in this sense. But now if you transpose this to God you find all of a sudden that this doesn't work like that because God is perfect. So if you think of the Father as the one who loves and the Son as the beloved one, the one who receives the love of the Father, then the love that the Father shows to the Son is perfect. It's his perfect love of the Father. 
And the Son, who is also God, receives this love perfectly. You see? And to receive love perfectly means to return it. You see, you love back because you respond to this love. That is perfection. Otherwise, it wouldn't work. And so this is how the, the idea of God is love, uh, you see, becomes an explanation of the Trinity. The one who loves, that is the Father, the one who is loved, the Son, and the Holy Spirit who represents the love which flows between the other two, like that. You see, the Father and the Son. This is how uh, it comes together. And of course, the beautiful thing about this is that you and I, as believers, are welcomed into that love. You know, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but should have everlasting life. So I can know the love of God in my life. I can be integrated into that relationship. Now there are some people who will say, well, did God create the world because he needed something to love? Sounds like a good idea, but that, of course, doesn't work. Because if God had to create the world in order to have something to love, then God would not be perfect. You see, God has to love within himself. So this is why the Trinity is necessary within the, 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 the being of God. And in creating the world, God extends his love. You see, God opens up his love and invites others into it, you see, into sharing it. So we can enter into this love without diminishing it, without changing it, but we can experience it. And this is what the Christian life is, you see. We see the persons of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who live in mutual love with each other, and we see how that love worked itself out in order to let you and me share it. Because what happened? You see, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So the Father, in love, sent the Son into the world. But the Son also came in love. You see, in Philippians, that passage that we just read, it said, He who thought it not robbery to be counted equal with God, nevertheless humbled himself, took the form of a servant, and became a man. You see, the Son of God came into the world out of love, love for the Father. And he kept saying when he was on earth, you see, when people asked him what he was doing, he said, I have come to do the will of him who sent me. I have come to do the will of my Father. Why? Because I love my Father. You see, when Jesus died on the cross, you see, he speaks to the Father. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. You see, we always think that Jesus died for you and me on the cross, which of course is true, but we forget this other dimension. You see, that Jesus was dying on the cross out of love for the Father, because the Father had sent him into the world 
to do this. And so in his death, uh, the son was showing, was opening up the love of God. You see, what the love of God is, that the love of God is sacrifice. The love of God is self-giving. And it's self-giving to the ultimate degree because there cannot be any greater self-giving than the self-giving of the Son of God, he who is immortal, eternal, uh, and, and perfect in every way, became sin for you and me and died, suffered and died on the cross, something that was not natural to him, something that he didn't have to do, something that was not normal uh, in his life. He did. Why? Out of love for you and me. And when he ascended into heaven, when he went back to heaven, he sent his Holy Spirit into the world, into your heart and into my heart in order to bring us up to God. You see, the Son came down so that in his Spirit we might be lifted up into the heavenly places. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6, we are seated in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This is what it means to be a Christian. We have access to the Father. Ephesians chapter 2, uh, verse 18, you see, because of the Son, in the Spirit. God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. This is our relationship with God, our relationship with God in the love of the Trinity. Now, how does this work out in practice? God has loved us, and he has called us to share in his love. How do you and I love God in return? Well, of course, there's only one way that we can do this, and that is by obeying him. Jesus said to his disciples, you are my friends if you do whatever I tell you. Now, I couldn't say that to you. I said to you, you can be my friend if you do whatever I tell you. You'd think, I don't think I really want that kind of friend. Thank you very much. You're not pushing me around. You know, it's not what I want. But I can't do that. Why can't I do that? Because I'm not God. I haven't got the right to do that. But God has the right to do that because of who he is. He has made you and he has made me and he has made us for a purpose. And so obeying him is the normal and natural thing for us to do. You see, that is the right relationship to him that we ought to have. And the, the heart of sin, you see, the beginning of sin is disobedience. That's what was, was wrong with Adam and Eve. You know, God said to Adam and Eve, don't touch that tree over there. So what do they do? They go and eat it from it. You see, it's disobedience. That's the problem. And we can't be like that. You see, in our relationship with God, we have got to uh, learn to obey. Now, how do we do this? Well, we learn to obey, of course, not by head knowledge, but by having the Spirit of God at work in our hearts. It is the Spirit of God who gives us the spirit of obedience, who is the spirit of obedience, because the Holy Spirit has come into the world sent by the Father and the Son in obedience to their command. And Jesus says 
in John chapter 14 and verse 20, 23, I think it is, it said, when the Holy Spirit comes, the Father and I will come and we will dwell in you. And so the, the Trinity that we uh, worship, the God that we worship in this way, is not some kind of abstract mathematical formula. It's not something that you have to figure out. It's a loving experience of God that begins with the Holy Spirit in our heart, the Holy Spirit who shows us what Christ has done for us, who, brings it, who unites us to Christ, who ties us into Christ, and in doing this shows us who the Father is and what the Father's plan for you and me has been from all eternity. And if we've got that right, you see, if we understand what has gone wrong with us, if we understand how Jesus put it right, and if we understand how the Holy Spirit applies that in our lives, we can share in the love uh, of God, the love that they have for us, but also the love that they have for one another. Because if the Holy Spirit does something in my life, then the Father and the Son will honor that. Why will they honor that? Because they love the Spirit. If Jesus has saved me, the Father will accept me. Why? Not because of me, but because of him, because of his love for his Son. And the Son, of course, has done the Father's will, has accomplished the Father's will, has paid the price to perfection. So that if the Son has saved me, then I am really saved because the Father loves the Son and the Father respects the Son and the Father accepts what the Son has done on my behalf. So you and I literally cannot live without the Trinity. We cannot go to heaven without the Trinity. The Trinity is the mechanism, if you like, is the pattern of relationships in which we are integrated into God. It's the only way we can explain our relationship with God and why we have a place at his right hand in heaven. So when you get into discussions like this, don't get all tied up with theory and philosophy and all these ideas. Concentrate on love. Concentrate on your spiritual experience. Concentrate on what the Son and the Holy Spirit have done for us. And then you'll begin to understand what the Trinity is and why it matters for us. You'll never answer every question. But you see, the wonderful thing about love is that love is something we all can experience, but really nobody can explain. You know, we say to ourselves, there are some children only a mother can love. And you wonder how that's possible. You know, you see this little animal running around and you think, how on earth? Where did that come from? And you realize, but mother, mother loves that child. You know, you can't explain it. It wouldn't be you, but the mother, her love is something deeper, it's greater, it's bigger than all that. You see young people 
boys and girls falling in love with each other, sometimes you wonder how on earth that could happen. You know, especially if you're the parents. You think, you know, how did my daughter fall for that? It always seems to be that way somehow. Um, you know, I've got five sisters, so I can speak from experience. I mean, every boyfriend they brought into the house, I would sort of faint, you know, thinking, <laughs> what trash can did they get him out of? Um, but anyway, um, <laughs> you know, but, but love, but love goes beyond that. You see, love, love is a stronger power. And I say this not just to be funny, but you see, ask yourself, why does God love me? What does God see in me that he would want in heaven? What can I do to make heaven a better place? Actually, nothing. You see, if I go to heaven, heaven will be a worse place because I'm not a good person. But in love, God has welcomed me. He brings me into his heaven. He makes me the kind of person he wants me to be. You see, he opens the door in Jesus. He fills me with his spirit so that I become a kind of person that I am not really by nature. My sins are paid for. They're taken away, and I can get to live with him in that loving relationship in eternity. That's what he calls us to. This is the miracle. Don't try to explain it. Because you can't. You know, God, why does God love me? I don't know. He loves me because he is love. He is God. And he has worked in my life and he will work in your life in that way. I'm going to stop there. Thank you. At this time, we're going to take questions for Dr. Bray. Uh, yes, Joe. Insight. I, I wanted to ask, ask one question, though. You, you mm -hmm. mentioned that when a person is born and it becomes it comes into existence, they have a relationship with God. Mm -hmm. It's either yeah. a right relationship or a wrong relationship. Right. Could you look at that to say, well, until they're born again, until they have a spiritual life, they're spiritually dead, and you can't have a relationship with someone who's dead. Relationships can only exist between people who are alive. So in that instance, or in that case, or in that way of looking at it, could you not say that a person who is spiritually dead does not have a relationship with God, not that they have a wrong relationship? Well, this is, this is just a question of the words you use, you see, because what does spiritually dead mean? You know, spiritually dead doesn't mean inert, if you see what I mean. It, it really means having the wrong relationship with God, because a person who is spiritually dead, in terms of the relationship with, with God in heaven, is actually very much alive in a different way, because they are slaves of Satan, servants of Satan. So they're not, they're not just things, you know, they're not corpses. You see, you see what I mean if you're spiritually dead. It's just a way of talking. And 
uh, I mean, we, I would say there, you see that we're a spiritually dead person is someone who is, by definition, in the wrong relationship with God, because God is life. God, you know, God is the source of life, and so if you're cut off from God, you're cut off from the source of life. So you will be dead. But but you're not dead dead, if you see what I mean. <laughs> you know, you're, you're, you're not inert, you're not a corpse. You, 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 th there is a possibility of speaking to you. I can't, I can't go up to a corpse and wake it up and, you know, talk to them about Jesus. But I can talk to you about Jesus. Well, I'm not saying you, but I mean, you know, someone like you about Jesus. Because although you're spiritually dead, you're still contactable. So it's just the way we use words. It's the language that, that we use. Uh, it's not a, not a contradiction, really. Great. Next question. Dr. Bray, I'll ask a question. Um, if, and you can punt if you don't want to answer it. But uh -huh. could you play the role of the Grinch and tell us some of the hymns or songs or ways we use language that might not be correct you again if you don't want to be the bad guy you can say next question <laughs> that's quite all right uh but are there any that come to mind well yes there are various ones i mean it depends how subtle you want to be that's uh, your choice you know i mean there's hark the herald angels sing for you, example you mentioned this in seminary class and i uh i yes. have a new baby and i sing christmas carols to him i know i, I know I would, I would not Christmas. say this one because of what you'd say. Go ahead. Yeah, it's like the Grinch, I stole Christmas. Um, but it says, veiled in flesh the Godhead see. You see, uh, I mean, it gives you the impression that, that Jesus is, is sort of God covered over with a veil, you know, as if the veil could be taken away. Um, and, and that's not what it is. He became a man. And his human flesh is not a veil hiding his divinity. Because John 1 verse 14 contradicts that. John 1 14 says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Not the word became flesh and dwelt among us, so his glory was hidden behind a veil. Um, you know, so that's the wrong uh, interpretation of that. But again, I mean, I know it's the tune go, is good, uh, you know. Uh, I try and there are others. I mean, I, I, I try and think off the top of my head. Um, but um, the, you just 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 think, you know. I, next time you're singing something, what are these words? You know, what do they actually As say? As a good Baptist, can we still sing "Amazing Grace"? Is that okay? We can Amazing Grace. I, I'm, I'm teasing. That was a joke. I hope the answer is yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. I think I think I think "Amazing Grace" passes muster most of the time, anyway. <laughs> and ne <laughs> next question. Any other questions? Yes. Great. I don't even know how to ask the question, but local or uh, recent culture seems to be redefining the word love into different um, avenues, one way yes. or the other. Um, could you speak to how, um, in current culture, to speak about this topic about the love of God with that surrounding? Yeah. Well, this this of course is one of the biggest problems we face: is that the the words we use. Are perverted by the world we live in. 
And this is normal because the mind of this world is corrupted. So they will use good words or wor you know, words that could have a good meaning and they will twist it in some way or other. So love, of course, comes to be an entirely selfish thing. That's the first thing, you know. Um, it becomes synonymous with like. You know, I like ice cream, I love ice cream, same thing, you know. Which, of course, is completely unchristian. Because God loves us, but I don't think he likes us. You know, he doesn't love us because we're nice people. You see what I mean? Uh, he loves us in spite of ourselves. So the, the, God's love is, is, is quite unlike human, uh, uh, human attraction, if you like, in this way. And, of course, this goes right across the board. You see, words like sin. What, what's sin nowadays? You know, sin is only ever used people who eat too much chocolate cake or something like that. You, know, you have a, a sinful amount of calories. Uh, or, uh, and it's trivialized. The whole concept is just taken away. Truth, what is truth? We live in a post-truth world, we're told now. Uh, you know, where uh, the person who lies the most wins the election. Um, I, I mean, this, is, this has come out. This, you know, this is openly said, and nobody seems to care. Um, and it goes, it goes right, across, right across the board, you know. Uh, you na you, anything you can think of. I mean, marriage, what's a marriage? You know, used to be fairly clear, you know. Uh, but now a marriage could be, any you can marry yourself, apparently, you know. Uh, yeah, uh, apparently so. I don't, but my problem with that is I don't really want, I mean, I quite like to marry myself, but I sometimes I'd rather divorce, and I'm not sure what. How can you divorce yourself? Uh, but you see, the, but these words have completely lost meaning. They've been twisted in every conceivable way, and of course, love is at the heart of love. Love is is the most important word, you might say, and therefore is the one most abused. It goes with the territory. You know, the corruption of the best is the worst, and that's what you've got. Join me in thanking Dr. Bray for leading us tonight. <laughs> Truly, thank you. Uh, at this time, um, we're going to break in our groups. Before we do, I want to say to come back next week, uh, Dr. Steve Browning is going to lead us on a topic called Engaging Evangelism. You're going to hear from our pastor this Sunday about what's in store for the future of our church. And, uh, and then I think you're going to get a nice follow-up next Wednesday night of a little more of, of what that means uh, as we talk about evangelism, specifically evangelism in our immediate context in our community. So I want to encourage you strongly to come back next week. Uh, in our small groups, we're going to have five to eight people. So if you're at a table of just a few and want to join another table of just a few to enliven the discussion, do so as we talk about uh, the four questions that will be up there. And I'll close us in about ten minutes uh, with prayer. Thank you very much. All right, friends, I'm going to close us at this time. Thank you for coming. Uh, let's pray together. We have a, a prayer, the same prayer we read last week, uh, to read together. So let's close together in prayer. Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, set up your kingdom in our midst. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Holy Spirit, breath of the living God. Renew me and all the world. Amen. You all have a great night and I'll see you on Sunday.